welcome to another Infographic Instant conference presentation series. In this lecture, I will be specifically looking at the question, can the Hong Kong ICAC help reduce corruption on the mainland? So the research question that we answer in this presentation, can the Hong Kong ICAC help reduce corruption on the mainland? And the answer is yes, if four things basically happen. Hong Kong criminalizes the bribery of foreign officials in international business transactions, which is a completely bog standard provision in uh, international law these days. And it's a miracle Hong Kong hasn't yet adopted this practice. Uh, if Hong Kong criminalizes foreign bribery, if they criminalize corporate bribery, and if they basically Xerox uh, Council of Europe conventions and sign them with the mainland. And it's obvious when we think about the question, because we know that the US Department of Justice to some extent has a much greater impact on corruption in China than the Hong Kong ICAC itself. So we step back and say, well, what's happened here? Why is it that enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the US, an extraterritorial application of that, uh, of that piece of legislation, why is that actually having a bigger impact on China than one of China's own quote-unquote internal anti-corruption agencies, which is the Hong Kong ICAC. Now, we know that Hong Kong causes corruption on the mainland. If Hong Kong could be part of the solution to mainland corruption, we also know that Hong Kong is part of the problem. In the paper, we show estimates of the amount of bribery likely coming from Hong Kong to the mainland roughly 3.4 billion uh, euros in bribes are seeping across the border. And there's a number of reasons why Hong Kong currently contributes to bribery on the mainland. The first is that Hong Kong law does not outlaw, explicitly outlaw, foreign bribery. Second, Hong Kong laws are not extraterritorially applicable. So what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in, in Guangzhou stays in Guangzhou. Uh, her companies are not prosecutable, even if individuals are, again, in contrast to standard practice in most jurisdictions nowadays. And Hong Kong serves as a center of investment, which is focused on the British Virgin Islands. So we see Hong Kong used as a funnel for investment activities, very untransparent investment activities, which originate or pass through several offshore jurisdictions going into China and coming out of China. And simply by looking at the flow of these investments and by looking at discrepancies in the way these investments correspond to actual productive activity, and we discuss this more in the paper, we see that Hong Kong absolutely is part of this nexus of potentially corrupt payments flowing through from the mainland and eventually finding their way onto the mainland. Now, what the ironic part of this story, as you undoubtedly are already aware, is that Hong Kong is relatively corruption-free. Uh, Hong Kong has one of the highest ratings in Transparency International's uh, Corruption Perceptions Index. There's no doubt about that, but it is our contention here that one of the ways Hong Kong remains corruption-free is actually by exporting some of this corruption north. And, and we see this with businessmen traveling to Fujian, Taipei, Guangzhou, 
and we see these networks of bribe payments which we will discuss in a later slide. So we know that Hong Kong is part of this ecosystem of bribe payments going in and coming out of China. Can the Chinese use EU experience so that Hong Kong can help them to help themselves? So in some ways, just like uh, London uh, helps promote integrity across the entire European Union space, is it possible that Hong Kong can eventually play this kind of role in the greater China area? Before we tackle this question, we have to understand, well, what exactly is this role played by uh, London? How would we investigate Chinese official bribery if Hong Kong were London? So the purpose of this slide is to abstract away and say, well, let's assume that we are operating in Europe. Let's assume that we have all the same treaties and all the same laws. How would we prosecute corruption of mainland officials here in Hong Kong? And so to extend this thought experiment, let's imagine that a Mandarin pays bribes in China. Um, again, if this were, if we were under EU law, the uh, ICAC, in London's case, it's equivalent, the Serious Frauds Office, or the, the Met, I won't get into that distinction here. Uh, for our purposes, we'll say that the Serious Fraud Office is the ICAC equivalent. We know they would claim jurisdiction if a corrupt official paid a bribe, went to another part of the Union, they would claim jurisdiction even if it didn't happen in the UK, if of course the Foreign Commonwealth Office allows because bribe payments are an aspect of international relations. There's no getting around that. Second, if the bribery touched London or the UK in some way, uh, and under the UK Bribery Act uh, it defines extraterritorial and foreign bribery, so that would allow the SFO to claim jurisdiction even if this corrupt Mandarin, if, if assuming China was part of the EU, even if the Mandarin had paid bribes for quote-unquote services rendered on the mainland, London would still be able to claim jurisdiction under these conditions if there was a touch to London. And we will be discussing later in this presentation, well, what needs to be present in Hong Kong's law such that there could be an equivalent touch under Hong Kong's law? The third condition, of course, is that uh, in the European case, if he, this uh, Mandarin could be nabbed if he flew through Paris or any other country a party to uh, the union agreement, or as I will discuss later in this presentation, a, a framework of agreements under the Council of Europe. The last condition would be is if there were things like joint investigation teams, uh, mutual legal assistance, and similar mechanisms in operation, particularly uh, if there's a treaty in place allowing for the operation of, of these kinds of cooperation agreements. Uh, naturally, uh, man, these corrupt officials don't arrest themselves, so there has to be in place a system allowing for the function of things like in joint investigative teams such that investigators could collect the evidence and then later it would be presented to prosecutors for prosecution. So just as we have this uh, framework in the EU, how might we think about the future development of such a framework in the greater China area? 
And we know that if the Prevention of Bribery Ordinance were to adopt a similar measure, the same as in uh, the UK or the US, then this extraterritorial application of the Prevention of Bribery Ordinance would allow Hong Kong to prosecute corrupt mainland officials just like uh, Washington or London can do now. They absolutely can prosecute corrupt Chinese officials if the conditions I talked about previously are present. Now, what prevents this uh, in Hong Kong and China in general? Well, politics, of course, is the largest obstacle, and that's a factor which undoubtedly you've already thought about. Now, how would a, a similar arrangement work in China? So we've discussed this hypothetical example of what would happen if China were part of the EU or even part of this Council of Europe Convention Treaty area. And thinking about how this arrangement might work in China, let's suppose that a bribe is paid in China by a Hong Kong land development company for avoiding a local zoning regulation. Now, how would it work today? At, at present, we know that, that basically nothing can be done. Well, almost nothing. Subject, of course, to the, the recent anti-corruption push under the Xi government. Um, traditionally speaking, the state inspection bodies would have jurisdiction. It's a domestic matter for the mainland authorities. So in theory, it's their job to fight corruption, either through the inspection body or through the relevant body dealing with a discipline of party officials. But we know that those bodies don't work, and we know they don't work because the data tell us they don't work. Incidences of bribe payment are still very high on the mainland, something which the mainland government has uh, directly admitted to in recent years through their stepping up of anti-corruption activity. Now, it's not certain in this case if the Hong Kong ICAC, for its part, can start a case as the offense took place outside of Hong Kong. And while maybe in theory it's possible, there's absolutely no precedent for this happening. So Hong Kong's law applies domestically, and any attempt to apply outside of Hong Kong, beside the question of legality, also raises political issues. If we were to continue with the example we said previously about the European Union, if this were the UK and Macedonia, for example, uh, they both parties would just send a joint investigation team, uh, investigate on both sides, and even ask other authorities, France, Switzerland, etc., to help. In the Chinese context, it might be some of the provincial governments, it might be Taiwan, and so forth. Unfortunately, now the only recourse that these authorities have are to the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. Given that there is no EU-style approach in the mainland vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong, what can we do? And what we argue in the paper is that, well, why not create a third pillar style structure or a structure that is similar to, has the flavor of, I know that's not very rigorous legal language, but that really is as far as we can go, a regime which has the flavor of the Council of Europe conventions, which at least make the investigation and prosecution of corruption among very different signatories possible. Now, how would we create this third pillar in China? 
And for those of you that are not very familiar with the history of the European Union, I'm referring to the pillar structure that was abolished recently under the new treaty. And in that pillar structure, the third pillar basically dealt with uh, domestic law enforcement issues amongst member states. And the third pillar, it was as much political and diplomatic as it was administrative in that member states had to agree at a political level on cooperation. And so this wasn't the core of union law. And, and again, uh, this has been replaced recently uh, by the Lisbon Treaty. But nevertheless, how would we incorporate this historical practice into the context of China and Hong Kong? Now, part of that pillar, of course, was a network, a framework of agreements dealing with extradition, dealing with the handling of evidence, dealing with uh, arrest, uh, and issues like this. And even those basics are not present in Hong Kong vis-a-vis -vis China. And what's surprising is that Hong Kong actually has some of the, the groundwork agreements, if you want to look at this as the groundwork for a tentative third pillar, uh, Hong Kong already has in place these groundwork agreements with some jurisdictions that might seem as questionable as the mainland. In the popular press, they depict the lack of extradition and other types of cooperation treaties with the mainland on political grounds. Well, they're afraid that the mainland government will take over the Hong Kong government. And uh, corruption in, on the mainland would be so bad that it would overwhelm Hong Kong. Uh, and the uh, system would be manipulated by bribery, such that even if a mainland judge ordered the arrest or extradition of someone, uh, we couldn't necessarily rely on the quality of that evidence. I leave the, the popular press accounts of this aside only to note that we already have agreements with other jurisdictions at roughly the same rule of law level as the mainland, so why not think about creating some of these framework agreements with the mainland itself? Now, of course, any third pillar style arrangement between China and Hong Kong would have to be asymmetric in nature. So in this case, it's more like the Council of Europe agreements rather than the European Union agreements. Under European Union law, basically France and Germany, France and Sweden, France and Malta, they treat each other as equals. What a, a French court would order would, ha would be symmetrical to what a Maltese court would order, and the law enforcement agencies on the opposite side of that order would act in the same way. Under the Council of Europe agreements, though, those rights certainly are not symmetrical in practice. If a London court orders the Azeri authorities, requests their cooperation with some uh, area of anti-corruption enforcement, it's absolutely not the case that the authorities in London, in the United Kingdom, would treat a request from Azerbaijan in the same way that the Azeris might treat a request from London. In practice, both, both of those requests might well be ignored, but there is some amount of asymmetry in the fact that when there are requests for a cooperation, it's often the quality of law enforcement and other institutions which is looked at very strenuously before des deciding how to proceed.
So, in that case, one has to wonder if a system might be put in place where, as in, requests from Hong Kong to the mainland might be treated somewhat differently than requests from the mainland to Hong Kong, or if extra protections might be put in place. These are political decisions, and I certainly do not want to take a position on the details of any cooperation between Hong Kong and China to that extent. All I want to say is that there is certainly a perceived risk on Hong Kong's side that extensive corruption on the mainland might jeopardize the integrity of any such agreement between Hong Kong and the mainland. And under the, a scheme like the one we actually do propose in the paper, uh, China is just another country. So we propose that Hong Kong is to China much as the UK is to Azerbaijan, basically adopting this UN Convention light system, um, trying to figure out how to design reciprocity under this arrangement where both sides feel comfortable. Now what would the ICAC look structurally if the ICAC were more like the SFO? And what we see is that the three major departments would have to have an international element added to them. Civil Recovery's consulting team responsible for getting money as corruption leads to relevant harms, both to Hong Kong companies and to other companies across the border, naturally foreign investigations teams that work closely with their Chinese counterparts, and uh, research groups in order to understand where the corruption is across the border to quantify the extent of that corruption and to look for red flags that suggest potential investigations back at home. What this absolutely positively does not imply is that the ICAC has jurisdiction on the mainland. We are absolutely not saying that the ICAC should have the legal authority to investigate corruption on the mainland just like uh, the indigenous law enforcement agencies. Instead, we are saying that the ICAC should have the uh, obligation to treat this type of corruption as a crime, particularly when there's a touch to Hong Kong. So it's still a domestic issue. Uh, there's no question of national sovereignty being violated in this type of structure. Now, in practice in the UK, a competence for foreign bribery and corruption is split between the Serious Fraud Office that I've been talking about to create this uh, parallel with the ICAC and the London Metropolitan Police. Uh, they have foreign branches dealing with foreign investigation work and work on prosecution as allowed by mutual legal assistance treaties. Now, why can't the ICAC have exactly this level of cooperation with a foreign law enforcement agencies. And what we see is that in some cases like the US, what we're proposing is even less intrusive than what the Americans have vis-a-vis -vis their cooperation with several governments, particularly in Europe. You see that their Federal Bureau of Investigation has often very intrusive operations in foreign jurisdictions. And again, we're not suggesting that that represents the model for cooperation in fighting corruption across the border. Of course, listening to this presentation, you're thinking, well, that's okay, but what about the quote-unquote other China? What about Taiwan? 
And we know that given the close economic linkages between Taiwan, the mainland, and Hong Kong, excluding Taiwan from this greater China law enforcement area is simply a non-starter. We know that there's another $3 billion paid in bribes in Taiwan, and that these bribery chains are often long-linked, extending through Fujian and other mainland cities increasingly uh, as Taiwan becomes close to the mainland. These bribery chains are linked. They're actually passing through Fujian companies and on their way into Taiwan. We also know that Taiwan must form part of this greater China law enforcement space because the level of corruption in Taiwan itself is relatively high. So any action aimed at fighting corruption on the mainland has to have some cooperation with the Taiwanese authorities because otherwise, just like we see corruption seeping out from Hong Kong to the mainland, we might see corruption displaced into Taiwan, and actually we see that already. So how to start a EU-style or Council of Europe-style third pillar, if you will, in this region in the same way that we see in Europe? Well, the cross-straits agreements and other informal agreements we already see existing between the mainland and Taiwan serve as an excellent basis for this uh, virtual third pillar. We know that Taiwan cooperates mm, on a case-to-case -case basis, to be sure, but nonetheless, there is a formal relationship and an agreement for law enforcement cooperation between these two jurisdictions. So why not simply build off of that in order to think about this type of mutual legal assistance? Now, if we discuss this much more in the paper, but under the liberal interpretation of uh, the cross-straits agreement, and particularly Hong Kong and mainland law, this would allow already for activity under this third pillar type arrangement we've been talking about. In the paper we talk about the basic law and we talk about several regulatory decrees and we argue that the wording in those instruments is sufficiently ambiguous such that it would be relatively easy to uh, interpret them in a way that the ICAC could cooperate with Taiwanese and mainland authorities to the same extent that the Serious Fraud Office cooperates with the Macedonian or the Ukrainian authorities under these relevant agreements. Uh, we know that Taiwan already has a type of representation in Hong Kong and therefore it's entirely possible to envisage such cooperation. Now, I have to put on the table the point that you're certainly thinking of, which is probably not very politically correct with a presentation on the internet, but it's better that I discuss the issue rather than just blithely ignore it. And that issue is the extent of corruption in the mainland and in Taiwan. So the viewers asking themselves, well, look, how can the ICAC work with anti-corruption agencies, which are often very widely seen as being compromised themselves? That would not only endanger uh, the ICAC's potential investigations and import corruption back into Hong Kong, but also might even jeopardize longer-term legal assistance between these law enforcement agencies in the long run. But, as we argue in the paper, 
in my own personal opinion particularly this represents a opportunity more than a threat and the opportunity is that the ICAC can take its culture take what it's learned and that the ICAC can import good practices and a track record of success into these jurisdictions thereby providing political and administrative support to these rather fledgling anti-corruption agencies now let's switch gears from this highly politically charged political and diplomatic issue and talk instead about corporate liability. We know that many Chinese companies are listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So when we talk about fighting corruption in Hong Kong, it's a non-starter to talk about fighting such corruption here without talking about fighting it on the mainland. And what we also know is that in jurisdictions with high levels of corruption, it's often far easier to apply civil remedies rather than criminal re remedies. In other words, because it is so administratively difficult to throw people in prison, or because corruption is so entrenched in administrative organs that it is not possible to pass down criminal sentences, it is often easier to use civil remedies, particularly when these remedies do not require proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And we discuss that a bit more in the next slide, but there's very compelling reasons to use a system of punishment which relies on a balance of probabilities rather than something beyond a reasonable doubt when trying to take a very corrupt jurisdiction and reduce overall levels of corruption. And the equivalent sentence, as you see humoristically portrayed on the slide, is that a judge in this case would certainly not sentence an individual to jail or worse in the mainland's case, but to some relatively light administrative penalty applied to the company rather than to individuals. And we see, particularly in the U.S., that becoming the sentence of choice in terms of tackling corruption at a systemic level. Now, we know that corporate criminalization is the way that the ICAC can whack corruption on the mainland. Uh, it's the way that the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI on the investigatory side uh, deals with corruption in the EU and Japan in foreign jurisdictions. Uh, it allows for quick and easy prosecution with none of the mess. So the Department of Justice certainly isn't going to go around throwing Brits into prison. They're not going to throw Macedonians. They're not going to throw Mexicans into prison. By relying on a system of corporate penalties, however, it makes investigation and punishment just all the more palatable. Now, let's talk a bit more about the incentives and, and punishments uh, concomitant with criminal versus civil prosecution. I've been trying to convince you that a lot of mainland corruption should be tackled by the Hong Kong authorities. Uh, we've been talking about the ICAC. And I've been trying to convince you that, look, we don't have to throw mainland officials in prison, but we should apply remedies to mainland companies. And let's think about how that might uh, affect a very large-scale change in institutions back on the mainland. 
And to illustrate this, imagine that you have a very large bribe payment, which is shown on the upper left-hand part of this slide. Now, imagine that there are two potential punishments. Uh, one punishment showing that we can throw people in prison. And there's a 2% probability of someone actually landing up in prison. On the other hand, we can do the equivalent of scolding companies. We can apply fines, we can apply certain restrictions on their trading activities, something not very serious, but if they are in fact guilty of paying this bribe, and we presume for the purposes of this slide that the bribe has been actually been paid, we know that there's a 99% probability of detection and therefore uh, enforcement of the relevant law. Now, looking simply at the final result of these two regimes, we think, well, what incentives do companies have to engage in the bribe payment that we have supposed took place in the first place, right? So, so companies see this incentive structure, and before even going to step one and paying the bribe, they calculate what is in their own interest. Economists call this backward induction. They look at the outcome first and then go back to think about what the best uh, choice at the beginning of this game is. And we see in this very simple example, and, and we show much more complicated examples in the paper, but in this simple example we see that it is in mainland companies' incentives not to pay the bribe. It's in their incentive to be good even though the uh, extent of punishment is much, much less. And the simple reason for that is because the probability of it being applied is much higher. Uh, and we see this already occurring in several jurisdictions in Eastern Europe, in which I used to work, where they used to be highly corrupt, and now corruption levels have fallen like, like a stone, simply because they're applying some of these remedies that we're used to in the Anglo-Saxon world. In order to understand some of the more technical terms of the paper, I've gone ahead and presented some of the uh, vocabulary that the reader might need when they're trying to understand the argument we need in the paper. Stepping back for a moment and thinking about the conclusion of this slide, it's that turning Hong Kong's Department of Justice into a U.S.-style Department of Justice would absolutely crush corruption on the mainland. Of that, we can be sure. Now, given that they do not have this competence, what's the second best? What system can we put in place which both maximizes mainland law enforcement agencies' ability to fight corruption and their incentives to do this? Now, of course, we know that from the Hong Kong side, Hong Kong is not going to adopt these measures in the Prevention of Bribery Ordinance unless there's an economic incentive and there's a political incentive. Laws simply are not passed if they make the country bankrupt and if no one supports them. So the purpose of this slide is to review the economics of the proposals we make in the paper. And in the next slide we talk about the politics of uh, adopting changes to the Prevention of Bribery Ordinance. Now we know that mutual legal assistance of the kind we have been describing in the paper is incentive compatible and resource positive. That means that the government will want to do it and companies will want to do it if tax revenue exceeds what we spend in ICAC expenditures. 
So if we know that ICAC cooperation with mainland authorities on fighting corruption actually increases the amount of resources the government has at their disposal, then why not do it? It just makes Hong Kong that much richer and probably makes the mainland just that much richer as well. Uh, and we know several econometric studies have shown that if uh, ICAC style work such as we propose in the paper were to exist this would increase investment and growth in the mainland which is Hong Kong's largest investment and trading partner and it is this growth in investment and trade which then filters back into economic activity in Hong Kong and consequently to increase tax revenue. We estimate that this would create roughly an extra 20 million dollars in funding so the Treasury has every incentive to do this. Now, the more difficult aspect of legislative reform, of course, is the political side. And in the paper, we resort to a very controversial set of tools that economists actually find relatively uncontroversial, and that is political economic analysis. And what this type of analysis does is it divides the population into different groups, uh, depending on their voting power and depending on their uh, economic incentives. So in Hong Kong's case, we've divided Hong Kong, of course, votes for amendments to the legislation by political party, which, which only makes sense. And the good thing about Hong Kong is that some of these constituencies actually represent economic interests, unlike in other countries. So we know that if deeper ICAC cooperation with the fight against corruption on the mainland benefits bankers, for example, then bankers, through their constituents in the Legislative Assembly, will go ahead and vote for those changes. Uh, in other words, if changes to the Prevention of Bribery Ordinance help a constituency by even one dollar, we assume for the purpose of this type of analysis that they will vote for it. And um, any group that is harmed by these proposals, we assume that all their votes go against reform. And what we find in the case of the four changes that we propose in the paper is that if they were proposed all at the same time, ratification would fail. There are simply too many interests negatively affected by uh, any fight against corruption on the mainland in order for uh, such a bill, uh, amendments to the Prevention of Bribery Ordinance to pass. So in order to get it to pass, the changes have to be chopped up since they have to be sequenced and they have to be timed in a way that encourage particular economic interests to go along with the reform. So wrapping up the paper, the question that we looked at should the Hong Kong uh, Independent uh, Commission Against Corruption help reduce corruption on the mainland? And the answer is yes they should if there are four changes to the existing Prevention of Bribery Ordinance. First, if Hong Kong adopts the exact same provision that exists in almost all other legislation around the world, and that is the criminalization of the bribery of foreign officials, if they criminalize uh, foreign bribery, if they make companies liable for corruption, 
and if they adopt the other measures that are omnipresent in uh, Council of Europe and the standard conventions against corruption, many of these conventions deal with the issues of mutual legal assistance that I've raised in this presentation but haven't had time to go into the nitty-gritty of. And uh, thinking about the benefits of adopting such reform, it's no good just to wish and pray for such reform. You have to show that it brings actual benefits to the reforming parties and the executive agencies responsible for implementing these reforms. And we know that our proposals would benefit the ICAC. Of course, the Chinese have to be on board, otherwise that all these proposals are a complete non-starter. Now, why should the Chinese Communist Party accept increased ICAC work on the mainland and of course uh, there's several reasons one is to help bolster the competencies of anti-corruption agencies and law enforcement agencies on the mainland the second reason is to show quite firmly look we are really 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 dedicated to fighting corruption we the state council and the executives of the Chinese government and we're so committed to fighting corruption that we are bringing this law enforcement agency that has been shown to fight corruption very successfully we're bringing it here to help us the third reason is that it will create a more stable base for Chinese economic growth any of you who have even glanced at an academic paper or news article about the mainland have seen non-stop ruminations about the extent to which lack of rule of law on the mainland threatens uh, China's economic growth. Whether it's true or not, that's another issue. And lastly, okay, let, let's play devil's advocate. Let's say that the Communist Party is really only interested in keeping political power. Well, having a stable regime and one which is free from corruption can only promote the long-term stability of the Communist Party. So to that end, and if we're being really evil and saying, well, ha ha ha, the Communists actually are trying to keep a democratic uprising from happening, well, this could promote that objective. Of course, it could promote the other objective as well, but I certainly won't go into that. It's only to say that there are strong incentives in this policy package which promote the long-term objectives sought by the Communist Party as well as by the Hong Kong government. This has been another Infographic Instance conference presentation.